Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 27th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by journalist Jessica Luther to discuss Ohio State's decision to suspend, but not fire, its football coach Urban Meyer for three games for his failure to do much of anything about domestic abuse allegations against an assistant coach. John Branch of the New York Times will also come on the show to talk about the subculture of speed cubing, his son's fascination with the Rubik's Cube, and the autistic teenager who can twirl a cube faster than anyone in the world. And we're going to close things out by playing two of our favorite bonus segments from this year, a conversation about the perils of co-ed sports teams, and another about the Chinese nicknames of NBA players. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, a man who is enthralled by preseason football on Thursday night. Before we get into that, I should say that we're recording this on Friday instead of our usual Monday. So preseason football from Thursday night is fresh in our minds. It is the main sports event in right in the front of my brain right now. Why were you enthralled? Well, because you, cause you emailed me at, uh, and said that the Cleveland Browns were ahead of the Philadelphia Eagles five to nothing in the fourth quarter. Yeah, I think when it's uh, when there's a score of five in the fourth quarter, there should be a Twitter Alert. account, a single serving Twitter account that yeah. alerts only Stefan and no one there else. There are others out there <laughs> I've discovered who share this obsession. So one thing that we were uh, both surprised to find out is that five to nothing is actually a more common final score than five to three. Yeah, there's only been one five to three, but there have been three five to nothing. Yeah, th- these are. I, th- I don't think preseason games are counted in they're not. scoring records. They're not counted in any records in the NFL. Otherwise, Ola Kimran's 65 yard field goal for the Denver Broncos would have been a record. Um, five to three, just one game, October 17th, 1925. The Frankfurt Yellow Jackets over the New York Giants. The Providence Steamroller was involved in the first uh, 5-0 game. And the Buffalo Bisons, yeah, they won. The Steamroller won. The game, I think sort of the seminal game in my in my life's obsession with scores and other oddities in sports, uh, it really was the Dallas Cowboys beating the Detroit Lions 5 to nothing in a playoff game when I was seven years old. Yeah, that begins a lifetime obsession with Scorigami. Yes. When, you're, when there's a 5 nothing game when, when you're, you're seven, seven years old. It's like right in your wheelhouse. Yeah. It's unavoidable. Perfect. All right, let's start the show. A quick note before we start our segment on Ohio State and Urban Meyer. During the conversation, we talk about Meyer's failure to acknowledge or apologize to Courtney Smith, the victim of his assistant coach Zach Smith's alleged domestic abuse. After we recorded the segment, Meyer issued a statement on Twitter, which read in part, My words and demeanor on Wednesday did not show how seriously I take relationship violence. Let me say here and now what I should have said on Wednesday. I sincerely apologize to Courtney Smith and her children for what they have gone through. Now, here is our conversation with Jessica Luther. Last week, Ohio State announced that its football coach, Urban Meyer, would be suspended for three games for his role in downplaying and failing to report the alleged actions of his former assistant, Zach Smith, who was, among other things, accused of assaulting his now ex-wife, Courtney, on multiple occasions. In announcing Meyer's suspension, the school also released a report. This was the product of an independent investigation into Meyer's actions, which found that the coach, who now admits he knew that Smith had been investigated for domestic violence in 2015, did not deliberately lie when he said last month that he knew nothing about that investigation. At a press conference on Wednesday, Meyer apologized to, quote, Buckeye Nation. But when asked specifically about Courtney Smith, he had much less to say. Let's listen. 
Well, I have a message for everyone involved in this. I'm sorry that we're in this situation. And um, I'm just sorry we're in this situation. Joining us now is Jessica Luther, the co-host of the podcast Burn It All Down and the author of the book Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Hey, Jessica. Hi. Uh, You wrote a column for the HuffPost a few weeks ago that is sadly very apropos now. In that column, you started (laughs) off by quoting Rachel Den Hollander, the first woman to come forward and say she'd been sexually assaulted by Larry Nassar. And what Den Hollander said was that enabling doesn't usually look like someone saying, oh, you're a rapist and rape is okay, so we're going to let you keep on raping. Enabling looks like deliberate indifference. And that is pretty much the best description I've heard of uh, what happened at Ohio State and also Urban Meyer's performance in that press conference. Yeah, it's a. it just feels like a really big shrug. I mean, that was sort of the tone of his voice is like he shrugged through that quote unquote apology, his statement that he read. Um, and yeah, I think that's why the word indifference really fits here. Just everyone just seemed not to care enough to do anything. The biggest regret is I wish I would have known more, he said. And Diana Moskovitz pointed out in Deadspin that that was pretty much an exact parallel to what um, Joe Paterno said after um, the Jerry Sandusky's uh, you know sexual assaults came to light. Paterno said, with the benefit of hindsight, I wish I had done more. Right, which is an incredible cover for these guys because their job is to know more. Their job is to supervise basically a multi-hundred million dollar business. And he did know more. I mean, so it's just... That's a that's a well, deliberate, that's a deliberate lie, too. lie too, right? But <laughs> even if you even if you you know, let's acknowledge that he lied about knowing about the domestic violence accusations in ni- two thousand nine. He lied about meeting with Courtney Smith in two thousand fifteen. He deleted, with the help of a football staffer, texts from his phone that were more than a year old that may have indicated what he knew and when he knew it. And in probably the most bizarre part of that report, they blamed medication that he was taking for (laughs) qualities that would otherwise be disqualifying for a football coach. He took medicine that can negatively impair his memory, concentration, and focus. And this is in the independent investigation. This was in the independent investigation that was supposed to help justify not firing Urban Meyer. Yeah, it's like they threw it all at the wall. <laughs> I mean, one of the amazing things about the report is like how much Urban Meyer is a liar. I mean, I, I can't stress that enough. Like when you read through, it's just over and over again um, from, like you said, at some point he was telling them that he had met with Courtney Smith in 2009 after the original um, report of domestic violence. And the re- the investigators found that they didn't believe that that was true. Um, And this has sort of set the pattern over and over again. And like you said, this is someone who is supposed to be in charge of a football program and whose job it really is to know everything. I mean, that's one way that you are a successful coach, unless you have set it up so that you won't know about certain things, right? And we see that pattern over and over again. Nicole Auerbach, who now writes for The Athletic, she's written multiple columns over the years about these coaches. I think she had one about Rick Pitino. She definitely had one about Urban Meyer, about this idea that they don't know anything. And if that's true, then they shouldn't be football coaches either. So either way, um, they're not doing their job well. The fascinating thing about the report is that you know, Jessica, this could have been a report that would have supported Urban Meyer's firing. It's not like they held, they didn't held, hold back on the findings. They they held back on the conclusions or on the inferences one would make from the findings. But they've, um, you know, the the excuse about him taking the medication, which has led to memory lapses, like that is stuff that you would put in a report where you're like, we need an excuse not to fire this guy. But, you know, you could have put that report through like red lines in like 10 minutes and you could have gotten the this is why we're firing Urban Meyer report. Or those those facts and and revelations could have been used, including the medication stuff, as a reason to fire him. 
that we feel that Urban Meyer's abilities are, have been compromised and we didn't realize the extent to which they were. I mean, how sharp is Urban, Urban Meyer going to be, as Dan Wetzel wrote in, on, on Yahoo in the fourth quarter against Michigan, if he can't remember the details of things that have happened you know, recently that are pretty critical inside this, uh, this business that he runs? Let's turn, Jessica, to mm-hmm. the erasing of Courtney Smith from this press conference and from this story more generally. Um, It's not surprising um, given the pattern of these stories, but, um, you know, because of your knowledge of having reported on this, can you just kind of tell us about how that process works within football programs, about how, um, you know, the women or women who are at the center of these accusations just become kind of irrelevant? Yeah, well, you know, the first step is often to question their credibility um, from the jump. And that has absolutely happened with Courtney Smith. So by the time that you get to the final stages, you don't even really have to mention them because there's this narrative around them that makes them complicated and therefore you don't have to acknowledge them. And, you know, and it was Dan Wetzel again in that Yahoo article that you just mentioned um, points out that they did a very good PR job with this press conference and that they didn't release the the 23 page report until after it was over so that the reporters in the room didn't have access to all of this information like they didn't know that um the investigators found that Urban Meyer uh, that they believed that Urban Meyer was lying about whether or not he met with Courtney Smith in 2009 um and you know and Wetzel points out like what is like how many people did he tell that to over the years to sort of set up this lack of credibility? And then you just talk around them. Like you don't mention them. The only reason her name was mentioned in that press conference and kudos to this reporter from, I think it was ESPN, asked directly about her. Uh, That is the only reason they didn't make an effort to even address the fact that domestic violence was, you know, at the heart of this, even though there were so many other reasons that Zach Smith could have been fired over the years beyond just the domestic violence. Um, And I think when these stories break, they almost immediately shift away from talking about the violence or the victim. And we saw this a lot with Ohio State to talking about the football program. Like this became a story about Urban Meyer. That's why when he was asked about Courtney Smith, he shifted and said that he was sorry for everyone involved. Um, Because that's really where the story went. Like, it really wasn't about her. It was really about, you know, so sad for the football program story. Isn't that what these universities want, of course? I mean, it's the case at Penn State. It was the case at Baylor. um, It was the case at these other scandals inside the Big Ten. um, And the, the, the narrative overwhelms the realities of the situation. And the saddest part to me is that after all of these cases and after all of these years of writing about domestic violence, writing about you know, any issues, sexual assault, the the, univer- people, the universities like Ohio State and other big organizations still haven't learned how simple the solution is to say and to do something that would demonstrate a genuine concern for the victim. And whether that's a, some sort of apology, some sort of recognition, or making sure that she has care and legal advice and attention or well, whatever else she might need. It's not a misapprehension of the solution. It's just a, you know, they're making a choice about a hierarchy of absolutely what's, mm-hmm. what's important. But it wouldn't be impossible f- to imagine an institution doing this a better way? I mean, what would a better way in your mind be, Jessica? Oh, they should have just addressed it right off the top. I mean, they should have said something. It should have been built into the PR of the of the actual uh, press conference that they did. They should just talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Our first the point concern is, is the safety and well-being of anyone associated with this program. And in this case, that would be Courtney Smith. We are deeply sorry for what she has been through for these many years. And we're sorry as an institution for not doing our part. Fatsis crisis vet. PR right here. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not that hard. The, I mean, and one thing I just really want to highlight as we're talking about this is that we're talking about an educational institution. Like we're talking about a school where there are a lot of students and that, you know, everything gets erased around what these football programs are um, or basketball programs that they seem 
we talk about them as if they're operating independently. There's some sort of little organization to themselves. I mean, in theory, these are educators that we are talking about who are making these decisions on school campuses. Um, and to think that he can, that Irvin Meyer can be this, can lie this much about very serious issues and to very important people at the university and keep his job in this place. I mean, it's, when you think about it that way, it's like, it's not a surprise then that they don't really care about how they're handling this PR. They just want to get through this and get to the other side and let him be back on the field to coach. That is, that was all they cared about. And that was very clear. Yeah. So there was a story that came out last week first in the Diamondback, the Maryland student newspaper, and then followed up in the Washington Post about the former athletic director at Maryland um, hiring and using funds from boosters to pay for defense attorneys for unnamed players who are accused of sexual mm-hmm. assaults. Um, and actually, I will like call myself out here. It like took me a second to like r- understand and realize how fucked up that was because this is a school that's pay. This is a school that's paying for the defense of um, students who are accused of sexual assault and not doing anything to, for the victim, not paying for an attorney for her for the alleged victim. And it's just like I guess that baseline that maybe, maybe, expectation that yeah. the school will do anything and everything for the athlete and for the athletic department over the victim, who is also um, a student, is just so baked in that I don't even – I didn't even think about it, which, which goes is back crazy. to Jessica's point that they are run as independent institutions. And beyond that, they – confer on people like Urban Meyer this outsized sense of authority and responsibility and trust. Uh, Spencer Hall wrote about this on SB Nation. Um, You know, there are a lot of people that can coach college football teams. Um, Urban Meyer's won a lot of games. That doesn't make him special in the the, the pantheon of humanity. You know, university could say we're going to find someone that recognizes the moral imperative to fight against domestic violence or any other social or behavioral ill. And if we can't find one, we'll find other ways than football to give athletes a chance to attend college and raise revenue for this university. It's not that complicated to do the right thing. Like they've been lulled right. into this sense of, of this exceptionalism that Urban Meyer is somehow, you know, directly intertwined with the, the, the revenue fortunes and the fate of Ohio State University. Well, he is. I mean, that's... You that's, don't think there's another coach that can go 10 and 2? Or 11 and one. Not that many other coaches out there that have won three national titles. I mean, he's a really, he's really, he's really, really successful. Yeah. As far as sure. winning football games and Absolutely. finding another coach who could win as many football games. The next coach there is probably not going to win as much as he does. That doesn't mean that he shouldn't have been fired weeks ago, but like, so that's for the, obviously part of their calculus that he's a great is. coach. Right. So the margin between the 10 time, and 2 and 11 and 1 and 12 and 0 is enough to sacrifice whatever integrity you have as an institution. Seems to be. But then you right. have to say to yourself that he's good at coaching, but he's also doing all like part of why he's good at coaching is because he's doing all these things that you and I think are ethically and morally questionable. So, I mean, that's, that's That's part of it. So I, the system, the system encourages these kinds of choices and the people who rise to the top are willing to make them. Um, and that's part of what's wrong with all of this. Yeah. Two more things before, um, we close up the segment. Um, Spencer Hall also pointed out, in his piece that so much of this goes back to, um, according to Meyer, and I'm inclined to believe him on this point, his loyalty to Earl Bruce, who was his mentor, the old Ohio State coach, and Zach Smith um, is Earl Bruce's grandson. And just the perniciousness of nepotism, like, it, it just seems like, you know, Meyer not informing Ohio State of um, you know, accusations against Zach Smith in Florida when when Zach Smith was hired at Ohio State. It seems like it all goes back to the sense of like Earl Bruce was a man that I need to be loyal to. And it has nothing to do with Zach Smith's competence or the safety of anyone around Zach Smith. It's like me scratching the back of this guy who scratched my back. And then as Spencer pointed out, Earl Bruce is a guy who was accused of abusing players. When he was a coach. Oh, wow. And so just the perpetuation of this cycle and this loyalty to what people represent and not actually what they are 
is, I think, at the center of this. Earl Bruce was actually fired from Ohio State in 1987, not because of the abuse allegations. Those happened later at Colorado State. Um, but, you know, <laughs> the pantheon of great coaches, pretty much all of them end up in disgrace one way or another. Nobody is a saint. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention, Jessica, was you included this in your story from a few weeks ago. The coach at Colorado, Mike McIntyre, like a very similar fact pattern here, except in this case, it's documented that Mike McIntyre talked to uh, a victim of alleged domestic abuse on the phone for a half hour, who was the wife uh, of an assistant coach. And an investigation was done and nothing happened to him. He wasn't, or maybe he had to donate money to charity or something. He wasn't suspended. He wasn't fired. And I think the only reason we're even talking about Urban Meyer being suspended for three games is because he's more famous. Like, there's no reason we shouldn't be talking or shouldn't have been talking as loudly and as long about Mike McIntyre. I always find it confusing which ones catch on and which ones don't. And it is almost, it's so similar. And yeah, he didn't get in trouble at all. But I do think it matters that, you know, Me Too always in the last year has played a role in uh, how big stories get that we are paying a particular kind of attention. And I do think it matters that it was Urban Meyer, that he was a huge deal. And we like to talk about these guys, um, even though we all knew what the final outcome would be, I think, that nothing would actually happen. But it's a tantalizing story because of him. But just imagine what kind of a statement it would have made if Ohio State had let someone as important and prominent and successful as Urban Meyer go because of what happened there. It would have been huge. I mean, the bar is so low that when he got suspended with pay while they were investigating, so many people that I talked to were shocked that they would even do that. So the idea that they would have fired him, uh, I, I couldn't believe that it would happen. And obviously it didn't. Um, so it was right in my gut, but it would have been a really big, important message. And I'm sad that Ohio State didn't take that chance. Jessica Luther is the co-host of the podcast, Burn It All Down. And she is the author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football, and the Politics of Rape. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our segment on speed cubing, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about a couple different conundrums sent in by listeners. Uh, I'll let you know about one of them. One of them is, what if other sports were like tennis and had different seasons for different court surfaces? LBJ on ice. Just let that, think about that. Think about that tableau. If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Ready. That is the sound of 16-year-old Max Park solving a 3x3 Rubik's Cube at the 2018 Cubing USA National Championships. Park is the Tiger Woods, the young Tiger Woods, of speed cubing. That's the subculture of competitive solvers whose fingers spin lubed-up cubes of varying shapes and sizes at the same dizzying speeds that their brains process the mathematics of the sport. The Pulitzer Prize winning sports writer John Branch of the New York Times wrote about the tournament and the culture of speed cubing in a piece last week titled Children of the Cube. He's also the author of two terrific books, Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of Derek Bogard, and just a couple of months ago, The Last Cowboys, a Pioneer Family in the New West. John joins us from a golf tent, so you might be hearing some ambient golf sound in the background. And I should also note that Josh will not be joining us for this segment. Hey, John, thank you for coming on the show. 
Stefan, thanks for having me. Let us uh, start with the subculture of speed cubing. There were about 600 competitors at the cubing nationals in Salt Lake that you attended, like other mind sports. This is a big deal. How are these mostly kids different from those of us who fiddled with a Rubik's Cube when it went big in the 1980s? Yeah, well, first of all, they do it fast. Um, you and I probably didn't solve it at all, or if we did, not very quickly. Um, these kids are average age of about 16. About 90% of them are boys. Um, it's, you know, you kind of hate to stereotype kids, but my son's one of them. And they tend to be kind of math and science-y kinds of kids. Once they get a little bit older and they uh, can look back, once they're like in their 20s, a lot of the, the ex-champions or some of the, even the current um, record holders or top guys that are in their early 20s will look back and say, you know, we're, we're nerds. Um, <laughs> and they kind of say that with a badge of honor and a little bit of self-deprecation. So it's just kind of a, a group of kids that are looking for a place to fit in, and they kind of find their tribe, which is, I guess, probably the case with a lot of subcultures. No, it definitely is, and it's the case with the subculture that I've been participating in for 20 years and, and do it with a lot of kids, Scrabble, of course. Um, but before we get to sort of the whys of what attracts kids to cubing, um, I want to talk a little bit about – I want you to tell us a little bit about Max Park, the uh, the kid that was solving in the clip that I played. He's 16 years old. He's from California. He is crushing speed cubing records um, or is the head of a cubing website called Cubicle said to you. He is breaking cubing. He is physically really strong and his turning speed is out of control. Tell us the backstory about Max Park and why cubing has become a sort of refuge and a therapy for him. Yeah, so Max Park and his parents, they live in Cerritos, California, in Southern California. And early on, um, they recognized something was different with him. They thought he might be deaf. He just did not engage with others. Um, you know, a, a plate could break and he wouldn't turn his head. Eventually, he's not deaf. He was um, diagnosed with autism. And now he's 16, a pretty big kid. Um, back when he was seven or eight, as they were trying to uh, work through some of the issues of autism, um, including socialization, um, one of the symptoms for these kids can be um, difficulty with fine motor skills. And so they had, the family had done all sorts of therapy kind of sessions with, you know, taking coins, trying to get him to pick up coins, um, trying to open up bottles, things like that. And at some point, somebody handed him a Rubik's Cube and he just loved it. He just loved spinning it. And they kind of said, oh, this is great. He'll, um, it gives him something to do. It's, it's good for his, his dexterity. And as kids these days do, he quickly found online that there was a, there were a whole lot of people that were doing this and they were doing it very quickly. And he learned how to solve it. And he, at some point asked his parents when he was, I don't know, nine or nine or 10 or 11, um, if he could go to a cubing competition. And like most parents in this world now, they had no idea such a thing existed until their, until their children asked them that. And they went to a cubing competition, and he got second in one of the events and um, went to the next one and won an event and has just been rocketing up the, uh, the charts, so to speak. No, and, and, and let's talk about sort of sports aspect of this. Max has the world record in the 4x4 four four cube, 18.42 seconds. The 5x5, five 37.28 five, seconds. The 6x6, six six, a minute, 14.86 seconds. And the 7x7 seven seven cube, a minute, 47.89 seconds. And watching these competitors do this? I mean, it's mind-blowing. I mean, go watch some of these videos. They're fantastic. And I'll also, in terms of Max and what cubing has meant to his development um, and his, I mentioned, therapy before, there are a couple of videos that we'll post links to on the show page that are really wonderful to help explain sort of how speed cubing helps kids like Max um, uh, develop and overcome some of the social anxiety and uh, not just you know, not just physical issues, but also the, 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 these mental issues. And you talk about in your piece, John, how cubing is this home for many of these boys. And there's a personal story that you write about. Uh, you wrote this from a perspective of, of a parent. As you mentioned earlier, your son is 16 also. His name is Joe. He's a cuber. And you write about him in the piece. Joe's a smart and tender-hearted kid, but like the cubes he carries everywhere, he can be hard to decipher and solve. Most don't give him the time. Yeah, he's um, you know, not unlike probably millions of other kids out there. He um, he's a kid who does well in school. He, he when he gets attention, he gets a little bit of handholding. I mean, he's 
made it through algebra and three years of Spanish and just went through chemistry. He's about to enter his, his junior year. Um, but he falls to the cracks because of he's been long diagnosed with ADHD. Um, and he's the kind of kid that will just fall through the cracks, smart enough to get by, but suddenly after two weeks, he's missing 14 homework assignments that he didn't realize he had to do. Um, so we've been kind of holding his hand, trying to get him through schools over the years. And with his socialization, which has always been a struggle for him, um, he really finds it difficult to engage in conversation with other people. Um, nice enough kid, smiles a lot, but people kind of wonder, well, what's what's going on with him? Like, he doesn't say much and stands over there quietly playing with his cubes. And um, cubing has been the, that world, as we have thrown so many things at the wall to see what would stick that would sort of help him break out, or at least find kids that understood him or that appreciated him. Um, cubing suddenly became that one. And we, I think, just like the parks and about a million others that I've spoken to, were just relieved of nothing else to find, oh my gosh, there are people like Joe who love Joe, who appreciate Joe and kind of all his quirks and uh, idiosyncrasies. And it's been wonderful that way. Um, the, the, the sorts of social and behavioral conditions that a lot of these kids manifest, um, and it's also the case with top chess players and top Scrabble players, and I'm sure top Go and other mind sports players, to me, it's always seemed like there's a mathematical mind there that goes too fast. It's operating too fast for daily life, and it needs some sort of concrete puzzle that can be solved in an instant, you know, whether it's seven letters in front of you or a three-by-three three cube. What's been your experience with your son and, and then in interviewing and observing these other kids about how they process what's placed in front of them uh, in, in speed cubing? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people make that connection between the cubes and mathematics. There's a lot of mathematical theory, everything from geometry to group theory, I guess, um, in terms of solving these cubes. And when you go into these competitions, most of the kids, and you talk to the kids or their parents, most of the kids um, are math and science kinds of kids. Oh. Now, yeah, and now the question is, which comes first? Are they attracted to the Rubik's Cube because they're good at math, or is it because they're kind of in that culture of pardon the word again, but kind of that nerdiness culture of math and science. And then, so they go off and they find cubes. Maybe they find chess or whatever it might be. I don't know where the link is, chicken or egg. Um, what's interesting about speed cubing is that most of them say, yeah, maybe when you first learn how to solve a cube, you are using some of these mathematical theories, the algorithms, for example. Yeah, there's like a set of algorithms that are sort of the standard solves for, for a Rubik's Cube. They've got names like the Rue method, CFOP method, ZZ, Petrus. Right. So you learn how to do these algorithms. Um, but once you get to the point of your, you know, your Max Park or you're competing for these in speed, it becomes almost, in their minds, more like a video game. It's all about um, hand-eye coordination and recognizing these patterns very quickly and trying to stay one step ahead of, um, of your brain, trying to keep your hands and your brain kind of in, in, um, in connection. They don't see it as a math. They say, well, you know, when I'm solving a cube in five seconds, I'm not thinking about math. I'm just, you know, I'm just solving it. It becomes intuition. It becomes muscle memory. So I think initially, yes, it, it, there is some sort of mathematical connection to it. But I think once you become a speed cuber, those things, you, you don't think of it that way. They really do see themselves more as video gamers than they do any sort of, um, with any sort of ties to math. What's, uh, what, what was the tournament like? 600 kids doing this. Um, what's the, the sort of level of competition among the kids? And what's the, the sort of parallel level of, of, of appreciation for you know, the LeBron James of cubing? <laughs> right. Um, it, it's fascinating. It was at the convention center in Salt Lake City. So it was just a giant room of 600 kids and parents and so on. And you walk in there and there are just giant round um, banquet tables and kids find their place in these banquet tables and sit around and hang out together solving cubes. Most of the kids like my son will carry in 10 or 12 or 30 cubes in their, in their bag and they lay them out on the table and they all sort of like share them and look at them and, oh, how does this one work? You know, and um it's almost like a convention more than a competition. And then there's all sorts of different competitions. There's, you know, the two by two and the three by three and the four by four, all the way up to seven by seven. There are different shapes that have their own competitions. Um, so there are 40 stations where they call up the kids. And these kids, if you um, are eligible, say in the three by three, you come up there and you do five solves. And they take the average of those five solves and you move on to the next round if you're, if you're good enough. What's interesting is that is how quickly the records have have gone down in time. Um, 
to qualify for nationals, you had to do a three by three, and since that's the one everybody recognizes as the Rubik's Cube, um, you had to solve it in 30 seconds or less. That got you into nationals if you wanted to come to nationals. And so um, I think 600 and some kids came to nationals and competed in three by three. And 20 seconds used to be like the four minute mile. In fact, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, a book was written about Rubik's Cube um, uh, called Cracking the Cube. And yeah, by Ian Scheffler, yeah. Ian was Ian was trying to crack the twenty second. That was a good chunk of his book. Was you know a, a, a first person account of him working hard to try to crack that twenty second barrier. Well, twenty seconds would have been in top ten in the world as recently as two thousand four. Um, these days, my son had a fifteen second solve, an average I think nineteen seconds, and was five hundredth or so. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, they have now you have now kids are. If you're top 10, you are seriously legit. If you're top 20, you're sub 20, which gets you a lot of cred as well. But these kids are solving things so quickly now. I mean, how much of that is equipment and how much of that is just that kids will invest tens of thousands of repetitions um, of, of doing these cubes, of solving these cubes? I mean, because the cubes themselves are, you know, they're literally speed cubes and there's lubricant and kids take them apart and make them more efficient. There's all science to, to, the, to the equipment. Absolutely. Uh, you know, nobody, nobody in that competition uses a Rubik's brand cube. Um, Rubik's has now in the last few years recognized that they are probably missing the boat, that the resurg- resurgence of cubing has to do with speed. And so they now have um, Rubik's brand speed cubes, which are designed to, to not be quite so clunky as the old Rubik's cube. They have rounded corners, for example. Um, the inner workings are a lot smoother, um, but nobody uses the Rubik's cube. So there's all these other companies that design Rubik's cube style cubes that are much faster and they are getting faster and faster and faster. Some of them have magnets in them that will sort of help when you twist them really fast, will sort of lock them into place. Um, which, you know, I think at some point they're going to have to start dealing with what's legal and what's not legal. Um, so a lot of it is equipment, but also it's the, the popularity of what's going on. The numbers are growing exponentially around the world because kids discover this on YouTube. And so now you have more kids doing it and more practicing and better equipment. Um, you know, the, the three by three record is now 4.22. Uh, I don't know what it, it takes at least 20 moves at minimum, 20 moves to solve, mm-hmm. um, a cube. Mo- most of Max Park's, you know, five second solves are 40 some moves, which tells you how fast he's moving his hands. Um, how fast can you do 40 some moves? It's hard to imagine that record dropping a whole lot farther than four seconds. Yeah. It's almost uh, watching the kids do it. The, I mean, maybe you could describe the way this is set up, but the cube is under sort of a little cover, and then the competitor has a few seconds to study the the layout, the mixed-up layout, right? Yep, that's exactly right. So everybody will have the same scramble, as they call it, so that it's there's an even playing field, right? They all, they're all scrambled the same way. You bring your own cubes, so you're using your own equipment, but then they scramble them all the same way. And so everybody's first solve will be the exact same scramble. So then they bring it over to you, cover it up, when you're ready, they uncover it. You have 15 seconds to study it. And so they're looking around. They're trying to figure out which, you know, what color corners do I need to work on? How do I get this piece over to that side? And so on. And when they're ready, they put their hands down on a timer. They actually use the timers that became popular with um, cup stacking mm-hmm. a few years. Where you put your hands down, and as soon as you lift your hands, the timer starts. You solve it and put your hands back down when you're finished, and the timer stops. And... So basically, when you're at these competitions, it's just nothing but a bunch of stations. It's not a great spectator sport. Um, it's just a bunch <laughs> Shockingly. Of it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not head-to-head. Um, so it's, you're basically just watching a bunch of kids. It's more data collection than anything else because they're just trying to get everybody's average solves down. And then, okay, who made the top X number? You move on to the second round. Come back tomorrow. We'll do the second round. The other thing I, I found fascinating watching the videos, John, is that up until the very second that a cuber starts the competitive cube, he's fiddling with his own under the table. And then as soon as he bangs the mat to stop the clock on the cube that he solved, he grabs his own cube again and starts fiddling. There are a lot of great little idiosyncrasies. So you're exactly right. They bring their own cube up there. And as they're walking up to the table, they're fiddling with their cube. They sit down, they're fiddling with their cube. And then when they bring their cube under the cover, under the cup, they're still fiddling. It, they're just kind of keeping their fingers warm. They also use a lot of hand warmers because the worst thing is to, is to have a cold room and have your fingers not loose and limber. Um, but you're right. And on every single one of these guys also, and I say guys because most of them are guys, um, 
records themselves with, a, with an iPhone or some sort of GoPro, sometimes on their head, but usually on a small tripod. So that when they walk up, they'll put down their tripod, they'll fiddle with their cube. When the, their cube arrives to be solved underneath the cup, they'll reach over and hit the play button or the record button on their camera. They'll solve it. They'll stop the, the, um, record, the recording, and then they'll pick up their own cube and start fiddling again. Um, each kind of, I guess it's like golf and putting. They each kind of have their routine. And it's fascinating to watch that little aspect of it. John, last question for you is, uh, what was Joe's reaction to participating in the, uh, in the nationals for the first time? And, uh, what is it, what is he taking from it? He wants to go back, I assume. He desperately wants to go back. Um, in fact, I'm missing right now a, um, competition in Sacramento that we would have gone to otherwise, but I happen to be out of town. I don't think my wife can get him there this weekend. So he's, he's already signed up for some competitions this fall. His, um, reaction to it, um, he and I talked about it and, you know, sort of throwing out there to X number of readers that my kid has ADHD and is somewhere on the autism spectrum and is still having some struggles here at the age of 16. Um, and I said, are you okay with this? And he said, yeah. And I think he sort of likes that now people in his group know him and it, my job for the first time in his life gives him some sort of credibility. Like I'm suddenly cool. Um, because as I was walking around the convention center, the New York times guy, that's my dad. Um, I think it, in a weird way, he sort of got a, got a kick out of it. And I think he's enjoying this little small bit of notoriety that he's having um, with his picture in the paper and that sort of thing. So it's been very, very sweet and I think really good for him. Awesome. John Branch writes for the New York Times. He's also the author of Boy on Ice about Derek Bogart and The Last Cowboys about a rodeo family in the West. It's a great book. You should buy that. Boy on Ice is pretty good, too. John, thank you for coming on the show. Devin, thank you. Really do appreciate it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. We are going to close out the show this week by highlighting a couple of our favorite Slate Plus segments from this year. Um, Folks who are Slate Plus members, you might have heard these, but they're still good. They're still classics. If you're not, this will give you a little bit of a taste of what you've been missing, you can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. It's just $35 for the first year. And we, they're good. They're good. It's good stuff, Stefan. Hmm. Yeah. Keep you, you've been here. You've been here sometimes when for, we've done Slate Plus segments. Once in a while. Once in a while. I stick around. You do. You always stick around. Um, the first uh, one that we're going to play for you is with our friend and colleague, Christina Cotarucci. She wrote a piece for Slate earlier this year about her experience playing on a co-ed sports team as a kid and why it wasn't uh, necessarily an awesome experience. We really enjoyed that conversation. So we're going to play that for you first. And then second, we're going to have a conversation between uh, Stefan and Mike Pesca, Hang Up Emeritus, host of The Gist, and they talk about Chinese nicknames for NBA players. All right, let's listen to both of those now. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. And it's always uh, exciting to have Christina Cotarucci in the DC studio with us. Hello, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. And um, we've had a pop-up blog on kids sports on Slate for the last couple weeks. I will accept all congratulations for it, despite the fact that I've had nothing to do with it. <laughs> it was it was all my idea, and I edited and wrote all the pieces. Stefan, you did something on silent soccer. Mm-hmm based on an afterball here. Um, and Christina, your piece was uh, headlined, How Nine-Year-Old Me Learned the Folly of Co-Ed Sports. Uh, tell us the story of how a nine-year-old Christina Cotarucci in New Hampshire, let's set the scene. She's on, she's on the soccer field. Um, how did you learn? What, what important life lesson did you learn that year? 
Um, this is an important element of my personal mythology. So I was really <laughs> happy to finally have a chance to write about it for Slate. Um, I was on a rec soccer team. It was technically a co-ed league, but um, there were only a couple of girls on my team. And we were sponsored by a local dental practice who um, – I don't know if it was the – I don't know what the name of the practice was, but the coaches decided it would be cute if instead of just putting the name of the dental practice on our jerseys, they named us the Molar Men. And of course, uh, a few of the people on the team weren't men. I was one of them. Um, I was really upset about it because I wasn't a man and I was had forced to wear this jersey that said I was a man. So I took a bottle of white out, um, which uh, one of the commenters didn't actually believe could stick on a soccer jersey, <laughs> but I assure Truthers. you it can. Um, and I changed it to say Molar Women, um, thinking that, you know, maybe this would convince the coaches to change the name of our team. It didn't. I uh, still had a great soccer season. And then it, it sort of— You can of, brag. I MVP, was the MVP of the team. I score. I scored the most goals out of anyone on the team. My parents will tell you it's actually because I was a total ball hog, and it wasn't actually because Whatever I was necessarily the best player. Yeah. Um, right. It really, I think it made me a better soccer player that season. And I do think it kind of set me on a trajectory for recognizing how girls get treated differently in the world. And here I am at Slate uh, writing about women and gender every day. And this is your first memory of this thing that's kind of come to dominate your <laughs> professional career. It's your first memory of having this kind of consciousness? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously in retrospect, I can look back and see, oh, you know, the dolls I played with or the movies I watched uh, were all sort of part of a what I now think is kind of a sexist gender conditioning. But this was the first time I was aware of gender at work in the world and also about how adults perpetrate these notions of gender and condition children to uh, expect to be treated in certain ways because of their gender. Yeah. Um, and I think the co-ed rec soccer is a terrific it's a it's a petri dish for the stuff for kids at a very very young age. I started coaching my daughter when she was in kindergarten. We had like five girls on the team, and the rest were all boys. A couple of the girls quit immediately after kindergarten because they didn't like it. Um, and then in second grade, when we had the opportunity to have an all girls team, there was finally an all girls league. I got like eighty percent of the second grade to sign up and play soccer. Wow. Um, so and including the girls that had quit because they didn't like it when it was co-ed um and they hadn't expressed at the time that they quit that it was because of boys or that no they but had... you can see it on the field particularly if you're not an athlete and a lot of their studies and there are um uh beliefs that pre -pu -pu before puberty that girls and boys aren't physically that different right. um and that they should be encouraged to compete against and with one another um at those ages which is i think a, a position that you point out in your piece Christina the Women's Sports Foundation advocates and there are other groups that advocate this as well my experience was the opposite was that it was clear that the girls that were not super athletic did not want to compete at the in the same way they did not have the same aggression they did not want to hog the ball they did not want to to, you know, be as emotive and, and domineering on the field and that playing with the boys definitely was a turnoff. Um, and that once I got all girls together, it was a much happier and more productive athletic experience for everybody. Yeah, I kind of went into this piece thinking – not exactly knowing what I was going to think, but kind of expecting that I would come out thinking that, you know, there is a way to do co-ed sports really well and that girls and boys are equal at a young age and that perhaps the league I was in just should have been more thoughtful. I mean, first of all, the coaches should not have named us uh, the, the Molar Men, but also maybe that the league should have been more thoughtful and put and made sure there wasn't just two or three girls on every team because that's sort of a recipe for them to be isolated and marginalized. Um, but the more I read the sort of boilerplate arguments for co-ed sports, the less I agreed with them. I mean, um, uh, sort of one of the foremost scholars or spokespeople um, in terms of advocating for girls in sports told me that one of the main arguments for putting girls and boys on the same team, or at least giving girls the option to play on a co-ed team, is that it helps boys learn to respect women. And also that it teaches young girls how to deal with boys and men, which, 
As far as the first argument goes, I mean, I don't think girls should have to bear the burden of teaching boys how to be better people or just be sort of thrown onto a team in hopes that, you know, when those boys get older, they'll respect women more, an argument I don't necessarily believe. Um, and then the second argument that girls will learn how to deal with boys, I mean, they are going to learn that anyway. I don't think that in there's the a shortage of right. social situations, um, on the playground. And I think there that there's far fewer experiences for them to just be socialized among other girls and have the opportunity to achieve apart from boys. I think girls can be made to feel marginalized by being on co-ed teams where they are clearly treated potentially by coaches and may just feel like second-class participants because there aren't more girls and because their physical skills may not line up. Um, with the boys' physical skills. The part of in, – in your piece, Christina, when you talk to some of these experts, one of the arguments that they make um, is this sort of pushback against co-ed – pushback against the pushback against co-ed teams. And it's a straw man argument that the problem with the arguments against co-ed teams is that girls will get hurt or the boys will be devastated if they get beat by girls. How do we handle locker room issues? It would be psychologically damaging to boys, which are just ridiculous arguments. Um they are ridiculous arguments, but that has nothing to do with why girls right. might not want to play with boys. It, it, what it really should be about is what's best for girls. Right, exactly. And I think the perspective that I heard from a lot of these advocates for girls in sports was very centered on um, how can we make girls good athletes or encourage girls in sports and thinking about, you know, making an idealistic environment within the, you know, almost like looking at sports in a vacuum, which may be in a vacuum, boys and girls don't have many physiological differences at that age, but they've certainly been socialized differently, even at a very young age. Boys from uh, the time they can walk get more sports time and instruction, even just from playing with their families or with other kids. Girls are socialized from birth to not move their arms and legs around as much, you know, that's so even though they may be the same height and weight, they're not necessarily at the same skill level. But even apart from that, I, um, I this is one of the main arguments in my piece. I think it's far more likely that the sexism from the rest of their lives and the rest of their coaches lives is going to come into play on the field then, you know, whatever lessons they learn on the field from playing with people of the opposite gender is going to affect their lives outside of sports. So um, despite the conclusion that you seem to have reached, which is I find totally convincing, I'm curious, just as a nine-year-old, if you can think back, did the fact that you made the statement that you managed to succeed both in this environment where you weren't made to feel particularly welcome, right? And also um, just as one of the few girls on the team being like scoring the most goals, like did that make you feel like you had overcome something and like um, it get, did, it, did that experience give you more confidence despite the fact that um, – Did being treated badly lead you to, <laughs> no, I mean, to, to grow life as a is, person? What, I, what I'm sure. trying to say is like life is complicated yeah. and even if you think it was like a bad situation that you were put in that you wouldn't necessarily want other people to be put in, did you in any way benefit from it? Do you yeah, think? I think so. I mean – I and I credit my parents mostly with this, the fact that they let me deface my jersey um, right. and, you know, not being people who would ever go to a feminist protest or anything were very supportive of me. That was a, an experience that I don't think a lot of children get to have to say, like, this thing feels wrong to me. I'm going to try to do something about it or at least refuse to be refuse to wear a jersey that, you know, says something on it that doesn't represent me. Um I definitely came out of that experience feeling stronger. I don't even remember much of what it was like to play with the boys on the team other than that, you know, I kicked all their asses. <laughs> um, but like I was telling Stefan earlier, I, you know, didn't really go on to play sports into high school. I became much more interested in dance and musical theater, which are far more kind to women um, and where I was surrounded by more women. I don't necessarily think playing on this co-ed team turned me off from <laughs> interacting with boys. But I also don't think it necessarily uh, set me on a trajectory where, you know, I felt great about my capacity in sports. I just don't think it's as much fun for girls. I mean, I think for some girls who are, again, super competitive and super athletic, co-ed sports at a young age are 
are fine. Um, it helps. It can help develop skills. Um, in my experience, the boys' teams are more aggressive and faster and more determined to play more. They want to play more, um, whereas the girls are primarily involved for social reasons, which is fantastic and what we should be encouraging. Like, how do you combine the two? Being part of a social group is hugely important to sports, and being comfortable in the social group that you are playing with is also super important to, to in sports, and I think it works better um, when it is single-gendered. Um, but this isn't an argument against co-ed sports at all levels. I mean, co-ed sports work. Ultimate Frisbee, co-ed sports work. But I think the participants have to be at a stage in life where they can appreciate why they're on the field um, and what they're doing out there and that there's a reason for having a co-ed team. Right. And I think, you know, society rewards men, both financially and socially, far more for athletic accomplishment than it does women. I think this is part of what advocates are trying to combat when they're advocating for girls to be on co-ed sports teams is to try to create a world in which it is desirable for women to, you know, be strong and fast and be good at sports. And I think that's part of why boys might be more motivated than girls at mm -hmm. a young age, which you've observed. Um, but for me, I mean, um, one of the organizations I spoke to, the Women's Sports Foundation, told me that they had research that said girls who play sports with boys are more resilient. Um, I asked them to show me the research and they weren't able to find it. But I, even if that's true, I imagine that a lot of that resilience comes from playing in an, a, a sexist environment, which is kind of what you were saying, Josh. Right. Um, you know, that's not to say, you know, I think, uh, I sort of ended my piece reflecting on the other girls on my team and wondering where they are and if they found it similarly empowering or if they came out of it thinking, you know, sports aren't for me because I was on this team with few women and where our coaches kind of treated us like we weren't there. I'm looking forward to the oral history of the Muller men. <laughs> Christina goes back and finds all of her classmates. I would also like to find the boy whose tooth I knocked out in – I was a couple years before the Muller men mm -hmm. uh, where – I'm on a soccer team. Before the Muller men, I kicked a boy's. I kick a soccer ball into a boy's mouth, and his tooth fell out. And I wonder if he respects women so much now yeah, that sure he's he like, does. you know, a, a VP at Planned Parenthood or something. Yeah, we'll yeah. see. <laughs> we uh, were honored to have a Muller woman legend on the show this week, and Christina, um, folks that uh, enjoy hearing your voice, it's exciting that you. Are now podcasting for Slate. Where yeah. where can people hear you? Uh, you can hear me on uh, Thursdays on the Double X Gab Fest podcast, um, which is about to have a new name, TBA. All right. To be to go like completely transparent here, the reason that I didn't tell people you can listen to Christine on the Double X Gab Fest is that I knew that you guys were in the <laughs> process, and I didn't want to screw up and say the wrong name. We should have the new name within the next week or two, but it's going to be tuned. the podcast formerly known as the Double X Gab Fest That's on Thursdays. Name, yeah. It's uh, about women and gender, so perhaps I'll talk about the Molar women uh, on that podcast, too. I just uh, want to go on the record and say that as a male coach of young girls, I made a very deliberate effort to pick a name that was appropriate. Yeah. So. If you're coaching you're girls, a great ally, Stefan. No <laughs> coaching girls that. out there, pick a good name. Don't call them the Molar Men. Stefan gets a participation trophy. I do. In the <laughs> proper proper naming of uh, youth the wisdom teams, teeth Olympics. women would be a good name. I can just right or someone that. in the comments suggested the bicuspid brats because I seemed like such <laughs> a brat. Which actually that would have been really empowering. I think for for kids of all genders, brats with a Z. Um, to, <laughs> if you want to get the sponsor in there. Slate Plus listeners, thank you for being Slate Plus listeners. Mike Pesca is back. Hey, Mike Pesca. Hello. Let's talk about one of my favorite things over the last week. And there have been some pretty good things in the last week in the world of sports. But uh, Nick Kapoor, assistant professor of East Asian history at Rutgers University, did a Twitter thread um, about Chinese nicknames for NBA players. And then he turned it into pieces for The Guardian and Deadspin. It went viral, obviously. They're really awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, Kapoor writes in one of those pieces that the reason that these are great is that Chinese nicknames combine both affection and shade, producing monikers that both fans and haters can get behind. And this really is a function of the Chinese characters. There's a lot of room there to be creative and witty 
and uh, distinctive. Yeah. I mean, it really, I've always heard about the glory of characters and how it works on a couple levels, but mostly it shows up in a mistranslated tattoo. But to hear that James Harden is known as Godin, combining the character for God and at least one character of Harden, and he writes, this name is funnier than it seems, which is always a hard thing to argue, but he does it, because those characters sound the same as the Chinese word for magic lamp, meaning many puns about lamps and genies. So over there in China, I think probably 100% unbeknownst to James Harden. He's the genie. He's the genie of the lamp. And they everything is a lamp pun and a genie mm-hmm. pun with this guy because of how his name looks and characters. I love that. But the other part is that there are multiple nicknames for guys. Yes. So Harden is also the porcelain mamba. Yeah. <laughs> because he tries to draw a lot of fouls when he is barely touched. Um, and Kapoor writes in Chinese, bumping porcelain is a euphemism for faking traffic accidents in order to fraudulently collect compensation. Oh, oh that's so good. fucking beautiful. That is and so And I learned good. I learned about I learned about some phrases that should be applied to the American game independent of the player name. Clint Capella is called the Pancake Emperor because in Chinese slamming home alley-oop lob passes is called eating pancakes. How can I know Sports Center isn't what it once was, but right? how could eating pancakes? How could the announcer not intone that just a few times? We just have to get this information to Kevin Harlan. We just have to get this info. You don't think Van Gundy would love the fact that eating pancakes is a slam dunk? It could even work on the college level, you know? Uh, Fran Fraschella, internationally renowned. Once one slam dunk happens and you yell eating pancakes, that is going to take off. <laughs> I mean, basically every one of these nicknames should take off. And, and I'm also, I'm left with the, the, the thought that either there are, there are a lot of basketball yeah. fans in China with a lot of time on their hands. I mean, Chinese, I guess Chinese message boards for NBA message boards must be just these creative, you know, or, wells. Or does it occur, if this is your language, creation. or does it occur naturally, like when that running back, Ben Jarvis Greenellis, is nicknamed the law firm, which is not a joke that the Chinese would understand. But you hear a name like right. that, and a lot of people, I think a lot of people would immediately understand it or think, wow, that's a lot of names for one human being to have. Now, we should say a couple of these names... Uh, there, there are a couple subcategories, names that th- Americans could absolutely adopt, like Kyrie Irving mm-hmm. is known as potas- potassium iodine because he and the chemical compound are abbreviated KI. That's in English, too. That is in English, too. On the other hand, I would not know if calling Eric Gordon round face Gordon without his permission was nice. And there's no- nothing about the characters. It's just that he seemingly has a round face. The, the the chemical yeah. compound stuff seems to be a popular theme. Kobe Bryant was carbon monoxide ferric oh, so oxide, oh, so which sounds exactly the same as he shoots one fadeaway and misses. He shoots three fadeaways and bricks two of them. C-O-F-E-2-O-3. Now, yeah. That's I, awesome. And the, and the Kobe is a lot of shade on Kobe. He was also the king of striking iron and the Los Angeles blacksmith. I think that – um. I think that Nick Anderson could have been nicknamed Salt. Really, anyone with the initials N-A. Well, it would have to be an mm-hmm. N-A-C-L, wouldn't it? That's Salt. Yeah, all right. Yeah. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. Oh, if he had played for Cleveland, Nick yeah. Anderson, Cleveland, then it would have worked. Yeah. Michael Jordan, all positive, and this gets us back to the Jordan-LeBron debate. All of the Chinese nicknames for Michael Jordan appear to be positive. Gang boss, sect leader, all of the ones for LeBron, there are some reverential ones for LeBron, but also six-step mm-hmm. Braun is pretty great. And also King of the Crabs, coined after LeBron tried to claim that his traveling was a legal crab <laughs> dribble. That, that is both creativity and topical reference point, and I love that one for those two reasons. Uh, if Charles Oakley had a son... He could be, uh, he could be the breath, carbon dioxide, CO2. I'm just stuck. I'm on, I'm stuck on the chemical symbols. You're stuck on yeah. the chemical. I'm going to try to find an, Charles I'm going to try to find an instance where mm-hmm. Nick Anderson passed, uh, passed the ball to a teammate nicknamed CL and that'll be the salt. That'll be the mm-hmm. salt. Pass the salt. We'll say I'm coming up with that. Mm-hmm. Pass the salt, throwing pancakes, pancake emperor. Eating pancakes. I'm sorry, Jeff. Throwing pancakes. Throwing pancakes isn't bad. It's the new throwing shade. (laughs) Yeah. Mike Pesca is the host of The Gist. He's the editor of Upon Further Review, the new book. 
He's the what are you producer of the podcast? Yeah, I host and produce podcast? it. Derek what, John, executive what producer. Grand title. I just I just say I hosted the show, which you producer. probably know because I'm in the beginning and in the end. So people could have figured that out themselves. But yeah, I oversaw it yeah. along with Derek Derek John, great executive producer. And uh, if if listeners do so wish to help, uh, subscribing to that feed, it's a low friction example of uh, paying it forward. Okay, that is our show for today. And I'm back just in time to read the closing credits. Uh, Our producer is Patrick Fort. Also, thanks to Steve Lichtai for helping us out this week. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.